0: Welcome to this Mtech Access podcast at Mtech Access we offer a complete global market access service from strategy through to implementation in the UK all our work is underpinned by authentic NHS insights our in-house experts work closely with a national network of associates who occupy strategic operational and clinical roles within the NHS leaders in their field their knowledge and experience helps Mtech Access to be as close to the front line of care delivery as possible Please subscribe to the podcast or follow our LinkedIn company page for more information.
1: Good afternoon, and welcome to the latest in our series of NHS uh, Insights Words of Wisdom webinars. Um, Today, I'm delighted to welcome uh, Dr Peter Brambleby, who uh, will be able to introduce himself in a second. Uh, Peter's here to give us a, a perspective on public health. Uh, we spent a lot of time over the last few months to talk about the NHS view of the world at the moment. Uh, Peter's got a slightly different take coming from, from the, uh, the public health side of things. So it will be interesting to understand about a bit about what's happened over the last few months and a bit more about how public health and, and the NHS are increasingly working together. So Peter, um, could you just give yourself a, a brief introduction, a bit about who you are and where, where you've come from and what roles you're, you're doing at the moment, I suppose?
0: Well, thank you, Tom. Good afternoon, everybody. Delighted to have a chance to share my take on the world. Um, <clears throat> background. Uh, I grew up in India, where my uh, parents were working until I was 15. So I think I've always had a slightly different perception on um, the social determinants of health and wellbeing. Uh, Trained in medicine at the Royal Free, went into paediatrics, mostly hospital, neonatal paediatrics, and then became interested in prevention, because it was very obvious that many of the people who were coming through our hands needn't have been there if the appropriate preventative measures had been in place. So that took me into public health medicine, Um, so retrained for public health. And then um, working in health authorities, I woke up one morning and found I was a Purchaser, and the rest of the NHS were providers. So I went off and learned some health economics because um, suddenly it became quite important not just to have the epidemiology, and the pattern of disease, and what was happening illness-wise, but we needed to understand whether we were being responsible stewards of public money. Um, and <clears throat> reflection of how sad I am, actually, I quite I find economics quite interesting. Um, So that was that. Um, I was a director of public health for 10 years in the NHS in three different locations, very different locations, and took the opportunity of early retirement in um, 2012, when public health came out of the NHS and into local authorities. Um, In retirement, I've um, bought some woodland, so half of my time I spend doing what I consider to be proper public health, which is purposeful activity with other people outdoors, um and it's a unofficial social prescribing kind of initiative, which is great. And I devote the rest of my time to doing um locum work in public health in mostly in troubled local authorities, just um, acting up as a interim director to public health or just backing them up. So at the moment I'm working with um a local authority in the Northwest doing all the non COVID business as usual stuff while their new director of public health is up to his eyeballs in, in COVID. That's me in a nutshell.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Thank you, Peter. And um, I I think we'll come on to what constitutes business as usual shortly, but um, as, as with all of our webinars recently, we have to start really with COVID uh, to to Mm -hmm. give the context Mm -hmm. of everything else. So most of the news that that we've heard about, certainly in the media is, is around the NHS capacity to, to deal with COVID and non-COVID patients and also test and trace. Um, in terms of local authorities, we, we've heard a lot about the the sort of tensions um, between the centre and local, um, talking about lockdowns and, and those sorts of things and how they are perceived at local and national level. Could you just give us a brief overview of your perspective of the role that public health officials have have been playing in the COVID response overall?
0: Mm. Um, If I can generalise, which is risky, because it is patchy in different parts of the country. I think the um, public health directors and their staff wanted to be more engaged right across the field. It's not just the response to the viral threat and doing um, contact. Track and Trace, which some directors of public health just went off and did off their own bat using their own existing infrastructure of people in sexual health clinics who are used to track and trace for sexual health contacts, the um, health visitors, school nurses, people like that. Um, <clears throat> on the um, understanding that actually local authorities know their communities pretty well, many of them are tenants, you know, local authorities, their landlord, Um, So we know them by name and address, and have a relationship with them. So there was that infection control side of things, but we also recognise in public health that um, the you know the wider determinants are important. And this was clearly a disease that was going to pick off the already disadvantaged communities, and 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 quite probably widen health inequalities. And inequalities in health has always been part of our raison d'être to our mission statement. So um, we've been as interested in the government's response to COVID, first of all, excluding largely public health networks from the initial response, and going private, and going um, going to external providers, who well, I think it's fair to say have struggled to do the track and trace, um, rushing straight to IT solutions when ordinary people on the ground might have been um, more affected. But that's water under the bridge, that's as it was. Um, but we're looking really quite hard at the unintended consequences of, so as I quote unquote, following the science. Yeah. If I could just add one writer on that. Um, it's quite right to follow the science, but science is a broad church. Yeah. And it seems to me that um, the science they've been following has been driven by epidemiologists and virologists and clinicians and statisticians. Nothing wrong with that. All perfectly valid scientists but it would have been interesting if they broadened the scientific input to behavioral psychologists now how do people behave when they're asked to shut down how will government advisors behave etc um would, or would an economist
1: yeah yeah would, would behavioral scientists normally be involved in public health programs
0: no no they're not and that's trouble um i think the um Sorry, yeah, absolutely no disrespect. Some some very able people um, in Sage and elsewhere, but um, the chief medical officer is not public health trained, kind from a clinical background in some ways. So um, uh, chief scientific officers I, I think more consideration should have been given much earlier to the positive downside, the consequences of what they were about to do, because they are very real and. Um, <coughs> The, the, the fact of the matter is, um, as has been borne out, that more people will still die before the time of heart disease, respiratory disease, and cancer um, than will die of COVID put together. Mm. And so um, we ought to have been a little bit more careful not to have disadvantaged some of the people with coexisting diseases and the other diseases which came along. We've got rather too frightened, too focused too soon on one new foreign infectious agent.
1: Yeah, so you you mentioned briefly earlier the um, some localities going their own with the the test and trace
0: Yeah. in -hmm. terms
1: of making decisions like that. So there's a a national programme as it were, local authorities or integrated care systems or or whatever the the unit is involved in those decisions. Mm -hmm. how how are those decisions made to break off from a national program and is that a political decision or, or purely a practical decision on the ground
0: it, it's um it's a bit of both it's um a practical decision taken by local politicians um we have the national p- position which is national politics with a you know, capital p um, led by conservative administration conservative prime minister etc that sort of politics but local level um locally elected politicians and we have a, a, a a, a, a number of different colours of political background. Where I'm working in the Northwest, I happen to have a Labour administration. So um, I think what happened was um people saw a threat and some were more proactive than others, some were more um resourced than others to to, to go for it and do their own thing. Um, and the pace at which COVID hit different parts of the country was also different. So they came from different places. I think what happened then was those who had set up their own track and trace locally, either carried on doing it and added on and patched into the, the national programme, or they said, okay, there's a national programme now, we'll build out, we'll, we'll, we'll go with that. So um, what we've ended up with is quite a, a patchwork of different responses around the country.
1: And, and what would inform that deviation in response, you talked about following the science, and, and I suppose even mm-hmm. locally, people are following their own forms of the science. Or- yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so what what would um, inform that
0: um, At a local level. I, I, yeah I, I think um depends on quite a number of factors i think um, strong personalities um uh, people with um scientific credibility or presence um <clears throat> in some places it might be the director of public health in others it might be the medical director of the clinical commissioning group okay. um <clears throat> The uh, the people that public health directors will turn to for leadership and steer and indeed their own scientific advice on infectious disease is the local office of Public Health England. Okay. Public Health England became very important to directors of public health at a local level. However, I think it's fair to say that Public Health England didn't have a very high profile in the early days of the uh, break. I mean, I've been been going around asking various people who is the Chief Executive of Public Health England? And most people have become aware who Chris Whitty is and, you know, the Chief Scientific Officer and those other people, but the name Duncan Selby doesn't spring to mind. Who who was he? We can't picture him. He he wasn't on our screens and so forth. So it's quite interesting, um, the low profile that Public Health England had at the time at the launch and subsequently, and as we know, as events have unfolded, the been decided that public health England should be superseded mm-hmm. by another body
1: yeah and d- does that does that make a material difference to you I mean judging by your, by your previous comments yeah. possibly mm-hmm. not but did the the, the, the it, move away from public health England does does that have a real impact
0: it, it, it's still it's still evolving we weren't shown um the detail of the diagnostic what was the nature of the problem for which they were looking for a solution I don't think we ever saw that in um in detail. And insofar as we did, it was just in relation to infection control and the response to COVID. Public Health England does other things. um, It's the main source of um, data and intelligence and interpretation of data. So um, it's been hugely helpful as a data resource on um, mapping patterns of disease. And so we can compare our area with other areas with similar denomination um, similar populations and so forth. So um, Public Health England to us is a lot more than just a source of advice on infectious diseases or vaccination. It also runs the screening programs for uh, cervical cancer, breast cancer and similar things. So it, it did quite a few things. And we're waiting to see the detail of what a new organization is going to do. Is it going to do the full- with what Public Health England used to do? Um, or is it bits of it? And one of the roles of Public Health England was the quality assurance of the public health function in local authorities. So Public Health England has a right to sit on every appointments panel when a Director of Public Health is appointed right. and has a duty to make sure that the quality of the public health advice that they're giving to the local authority is is up to scratch. Um, so that sort of quality assurance thing will be an interesting one to see see what, what pans out very early yeah. days we um at the, at the moment everyone's got their heads down actually dealing with covid and yeah. a lot of this detail is yet to to come through and in my mind i don't think we're anywhere near a resolution. i think we've got some major change and major shake-up in public health yeah. going forward
1: yeah okay it could thank you in
0: it, yes. it could go into general practice it could stay in local authorities it'll all be pulled out to some central agency we'll just have to see
1: Yeah, and huge consequences as a result of whichever route it goes down, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Just just wanted to come back briefly to the the Mm -hmm. point about looking for evidence, as it were, and and you're talking about looking at uh, people locally. You also mentioned in public health, you look at other parts of the country that are similar to you. So I I don't know where Mm -hmm. your peer groups would be and where you're working at the moment. In terms of sort of contrasting the COVID response with public health, you know business as usual as it were. Hmm. Can you do that in the same way with something like Covid uh, in terms of how you're responding or are you more looking to kind of your neighbours because it the, the threat is geographically linked rather than necessarily uh, socially social determinant linked although there obviously is that link is, is there a difference there? Well-
0: It might be helpful if I explained a little bit of what we mean by business as usual outside of COVID. So um, public health has a budget and it's responsible for commissioning locally some um, services like sexual health services, smoking cessation, um, some of the immunization vaccination programs which are run and um, health promotion in general. Um, They also have a statutory role to support clinical commissioning groups sit as of right on the governing body of a clinical commissioning group and give public health advice to the local NHS commissioners who are the CCGs. Um, And within a local authority to be a source of public health advice to the local authority. So you, you usually have someone who's called something like director of people, and that might be adult social care, children's services, something like that. And someone who's called the director of place, who will be responsible for parks, gardens, active transport, design, planning, all that sort of thing, highways and that. And then someone will be the um director of finance. And so we give some input into um spending priorities. So within the local authority, business as usual means with the other directors on the um the executive um side. Um so all of that needs to carry on carry on going. Um and so, on all of those aspects, we will compare with our peers. so, for something like um sexual health, we might look at people with similar sexual health problems um around the country. We came to parks and gardens, we might look at someone else who has got us in similar parks and gardens, so we don't always compare the same like for like okay um when it comes to comparisons, <clears throat> but comparisons a very good place to start because um and not so that we all tend to the average, but we all go for the best. So who's got the best service cost? And we all and emulate that.
1: <coughs> yeah, <in> okay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh,
0: that, uh, uh, that's it. Can I just add one rider? Sorry Tom to uh, cut across to you, but um the rationale for taking public health out of the NHS and putting it in local authorities, which is quite a controversial thing to do, it could send the signal that the NHS isn't involved in public health and the health of the public. Of course that wasn't the signal they were sending. The signal they were sending was that the um the role of local authorities in improving the health of the public is huge and it it, it ought to have been um, more recognised and, and and beefed up so that was the aspiration um and in some local authorities that's been the reality that's been the experience
1: yeah absolutely yeah and and it's it's all very interesting I mean we we've had in in previous webinars from various people across the NHS mm. integrating and, and working in partnership with Other organisations locally, and it it seems that the NHS is getting on with that, and and variously local authorities are involved to to greater or lesser extent, Mm -hmm. You've had experience in different parts of the country. Can you Mm -hmm. give a a bit of an overview of how local authorities are navigating the route towards integration uh, in in, Mm -hmm. integrated care systems, for example? Um, Yeah, start start from that point, I suppose.
0: Yes. Okay. Um, once again, very variable, and there has we have that, as I said, overt local party political spin on 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 the particular direction it travel. So some will be much happier with the market commissioning type relationship, others much prefer in house services and so forth. Um, I just spent some time working in Manchester, which is probably as far advanced as any in terms of full integration of NHS and social social care, but. Um, they themselves admit that's not a finished um, <coughs> project and um, not without its difficulties. So the integration as we now look at it really began with the introduction of health and wellbeing boards back in the days of the coalition government. It preceded well, 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 about 2010-ish onwards. Um, every local authority had to convene a health and wellbeing board and this was a, an integration. Um, they had a joint strategic needs assessment where we took a common view of what we think the needs were. And that was the role of a director of public health. Then a health and wellbeing strategy of some sort. So what are we going to do about what we found? And then pool commissioning intentions. So this is where the integration began to be. Put your money where your mouth is. So where are you going to put your money according to what the above? And then finally um, some sort of a joint assessment of how we're doing. So, um, but for one reason or another, that was perceived not to have delivered, and so we went down the route of sustainable transformation partnerships (STPs), um, which have morphed into various other things, um, usually called integrated care systems now, aren't they? <clears throat> and within the integrated care partnerships, and, and, and so the acronyms and the and, and and the jargon explodes, but it's still the the idea of um, joining things up. <clears throat> But what they're trying to do is graft two very, very different species together. Look mm. at your NHS, this treasured national institution, nearest thing we have to a, a national religion. Um, very strongly um, driven from the centre. One size tends to fit most situations, and the top down priorities are very, very strong. I mean, you know, your career does not last long if you don't meet your access targets and your national must dos. they always. Trump, anything else you want to do locally. Um, and then you're grafting that against um, um, politicians who, um, who change much more frequently. The, the political colour of the local authority can change really quite dramatically after an election. Um, you've got a different lines of accountability. Um, mm-hmm. The um, executives and managers within a local authority um, defer to politicians to actually make the final decisions, which is different within an NHS component control structure. And so um, there are different ways of doing things. Um, and then in any partnership, I guess you follow the money, don't you, to find out where the power and, the, and therefore some of the strengths or weaknesses lie. Um, when you're talking about bringing budgets together, I think it's fair to say that local authorities in regard to children are bringing more money to the table. But when it comes to adults and the elderly, the NHS brings far, far more money to the table. And overall, the NHS is far the bigger partner when it comes to finance. Um, and sometimes that seems to be played out in where the decisions lie and where the um, <coughs> where the influence seems to lie. In, in my experience, the NHS priorities and NHS only tends to dominate. But um, that's a very sweeping generalization. Um, where the um, integration works well, it works extremely well. I think it's working best on the pooling ideas and trying to work more collaboratively and trying to avoid duplication. Um, But when the chips are down, and if it's a question of should we carry on with our health improvement strategy, or do we really have to put the money into the waiting list problem at the local hospital, the waiting list problem at the local hospital will win.
1: Yeah, no, it's really interesting. and, And I suppose it's been a tension. For, for years, is prevention versus versus the care, which is the, the title yes. of this session, and um, mm-hmm. it's interesting to hear that you still sort of perceive that tension around: do we invest in the prevention, um, or, or is it in the you know the, the treatment of, of mm. conditions and, and disease? Um, I, I suppose it'd be interesting to get a comment on. So the the context of integrated care is around population health. And that's the the, I suppose the the current uh, lexicon. Do you see that as a concept that sits within a public health bracket? And and should that be a direction of travel that fundamentally this is around Mm -hmm. almost kind of let's start with people that are being born now. And how do we get them to the best place Mm -hmm. in 80 years time? Or is it let's just keep going with what we're doing and, and just try and. Manage things as we go.
0: Yeah, uh, that's rich. Um, let, let me start with the, the definition of public health: is um, prolonging life, promoting health, preventing ill health through the organised efforts of society. So integration is just built into the definition of of public health. Um, it actually comes down to it. Um, many, many commentators over the years have said we actually have a a national sickness service rather than the national health service <clears throat> in fact you could say and this is an exaggeration so take this with a pinch of salt that what we actually have um, following the uh, market reforms in the nhs are competing health care businesses mm. not a national health service and if you look at um, the objectives which are set year on year for um, NHS executives, it will be in terms of access targets, financial balance. No one should wait more than X number of weeks for an operation or for a cancer treatment uh, or waiting times in AE, that sort of thing. That's what will get you hired and fired. I'm not aware, someone will correct me if I'm wrong, if any executive in the NHS um, being fired because they failed to improve the health of their population or they failed to reduce the um, inequalities gap in life expectancy. So, despite what we hear about the NHS is there to improve the health of populations, it doesn't actually filter down, Um, it it then gets translated back into access to healthcare. Um, And I'm I'm speaking now with a very strong vested interest in someone who wants to spend more on prevention, but honestly think that um, if the NHS had spent a bit more time really putting its money where its mouth was on investing more on prevention, we've got there. Now, I've done this um, thought experiment many, many times with different audiences, with medical students, with mixed um, public um, meetings or meetings of clinicians. It used to get a similar answer, which is this. It said, if you had the same budget next year as you have this year, but you could spend it differently, would you spend more on prevention, more on treatment, or more on supportive and end-of-life care? And almost always, people say, we would spend more on prevention. I say, well, that's fine. Second question. You can only spend more from a fixed budget on prevention if you spend less anywhere else. So can I have a show of hands? Would you take it out of treatment or you take it out of Africa? And nobody wants to do that. Mm. Um, but if you push them, then um, sometimes the, they will reluctantly accept that that's what we ought to be doing. But then that very quickly turns into um, a conversation about, wouldn't it be great if we had some proper economic appraisal? of Would the money give you Bigger bang for your buck if you spent it in prevention than if you took it out of treatment. Where is the evidence base for making these shifts? Um, and to some degree, we lack like that evidence base. You know, there are areas we have the evidence base, we just don't have the political will to actually do it. Mm.
1: And wh- wh- yeah. where does that disconnect come? Because I mean, mm. a, a lot of a lot of political decisions mm. it, it appears are made for economic reasons. Um, mm. So if if there is that economic argument there, I know there's one or two people in the audience who will be uh, screaming about ratios of three Mm. or four to one. um, Mm. And that actually that the evidence is there and it will be saved. Why is there that that dissonance disconnect between the evidence and the
0: the decision making? Right. Uh, Well, a great um, friend and mentor of mine um, is Emil Gray um, it, when he was knowledge officer for the NHS, uh, for which he was knighted, um, brought in a, a GRIP programme and that it, the acronym was getting research into policy and practice. Um, and there's a whole, um, art and science around, um, turning what we, we do know into, in, into what we actually do on the ground. Big part of it is incentives. Where do the incentives lie? People will follow the incentives and the sanctions. Um, some of it is education, some of it is insight. Um, and there's a whole host of other uh, other reasons. Um, I might say that the, the NHS is a wonderful institution, and I worked for it for 31 years. But it's also true that some of the people who are within it are wonderfully institutionalized. And so it's actually quite hard to. Um, Think outside the box. Sometimes, if you're steeped in um, <clears throat> one way of working, and um, I found it on my own personal journey coming out of very high tech neonatal intensive care into public health prevention, and now completely out of the NHS altogether, is working with with, with with people in outdoor settings and just seeing the transformational effects of you know, sustained lifestyle change. Um, I think we need. Uh, Um, a a new discussion and a new understanding, a new contract with the public. It's actually there in the NHS plan, if you dig into it, I think it's in in the context of social prescribing. I can't quote the exact paragraph for the moment, but somewhere in there, it says that if you really want to help your patient, the first thing you need to do is help them to make some sustainable lifestyle change, and that's not simply referring them to exercise. Referring them to mindfulness or something like that. It's usually a combination of all of these five ways to well-being. <laughs> that um, if you can um, encourage them, well, to share the responsibility for their own um, health and well-being. Because most disease now is chronic disease, isn't it? It's chronic heart, chronic respiratory disease, cancer is a chronic disease now. Um, <clears throat> and it's helping people um, make a sustained lifestyle change. Onto which, says the NHS plan, you can then map some medicines, okay. operations and therapies of various sorts. But it's almost as though the latter are, are complementary. That real medicine is sustained lifestyle change. And everything else is complementary medicine, which is quite a radical thing to put in there, but it's in there. And um, there's some truth in that. I think we there is a risk of over-medical nursing certain things, over-medicalising satellites, loneliness, Mm -hmm. bereavement, um, and so forth. And if we change the language, so if we referred, as Samuel Gray does, to maturity onset diabetes as walking deficiency, we call it walking deficiency, suddenly it puts you um, in the direction of a completely different therapeutic approach. Mm. Um, I wouldn't advocate this universally, and and it would need to be done with a huge tact, but. I'm aware of some people in general practice who are really quite assertive with their patients and they say, look, Mr. Jones, you're 55, you're perfectly ambulant, but your um cholesterol's up a bit and you're a heart attack waiting to happen. Um this is going to be a marathon, not a sprint. Um if you're up for some lifestyle change, I, I can help you. Here's a pedometer. Show me that you're walking two kilometers a day, and then I'll give you a statin. But there's no point in me giving you a statin if you're not going to do your bit. Now I've I've oversimplified that and there'll be people probably throwing throwing things at the screen as I say that. But but you get my drift. Yeah. Um, it's just helping people to help themselves, but in um in sympathetic and appropriate ways and caring ways that help them to permanently change their life their lifestyle. So I keep coming back yeah. to that. Um, and we're not doing it. I mean, it's just extraordinary how many people with smoking related disease go into a hospital and have no smoking cessation help there. Mm. And then we get into some of these barriers so, well, actually, that's public health job. Why, why aren't you funding all this smoking cessation in our hospital? The answer is, you know, funding's been cut. The so why is yeah. the hospital doing that, et cetera, et cetera. And then you get into the, you know, we, our hospitals are paid for the sick people who come through. They're not paid for the people who they keep out of hospital. But yeah. that, mercifully, is, is now changing as we go more towards block contracts. So the commissioning can be, here's a pattern of care that we want you to provide rather than episodes of care. Mm. And it's putting hospitals back in the knowledge business, which is where we want them to be. They're the skilled experts um, who should be treating um, you know, the most appropriate plant load. They're not in the hotel business to be providing beds. So you know? Why do we pay for beds? We should pay for their knowledge. We should, we should be able to ring them up or email them and get advice. You, know, you shouldn't have to send the patient there in order to generate the, the, the payment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so just thinking in terms of some
1: of those hard to reach groups and, and the NHS is doing more in terms of social prescribing and, and I suppose doing a lot of stuff around finding people through better use of data and various things. So the NHS is, is incrementally hopefully getting there to those hard to reach groups, but there's always been a 10%, 20% of the diabetic population, the kidney disease population, whoever it may be, who are not not receiving the best care, because they're not engaging, uh, or, or because they haven't been engaged, I suppose.
0: Mm-hmm. What can
1: public health um, bodies, public health individuals, public health initiatives mm-hmm. do uh, that the NHS can't? Who, who can public health reach that, that the NHS can't? Ad- admitting obviously that things are coming together slowly.
0: Yeah, uh, and we need to be very careful not to victim blame and say, well, you know, it's the diabetic fault because you know they should have got it out more. You know, it's, it's someone's fault because they're overweight. It's much, much more complex than that. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't address that determinant. So it's like this. I think one of the roles of um, public health practitioners, and I think by extension, I'd say pretty much everyone who works in a local authority or, or the NHS is, in fact, a public health practitioner. Adopt that mindset. Um, We should all be working to try and make these healthier choices easier choices. So um, for me, I think, um, and and, and I practice this, um, rather than spend the majority of my time when I'm acting DPH down at the CCG, looking at the medical models and social prescribing and that side of things, it's working with the director of place and opening up more leisure facilities or encouraging communities to take over their own local woodlands and um, so, in the old dispensation, <clears throat> someone will come to the council and say, it, it's a disgrace, you know, the local canal is, is messy, the dog poo, there's trees have been vandalised and there's you know rubbish in the canal. What are the council going to do about it? Well, I think a more enlightened council would say, here are some bin bags, here are some saplings, here's a spade. What are you going to do about it? And we'll help you. <clears throat> you take control. You, 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 you know. and, and in so doing, get a bit of community spirit, get out a bit more, look after it. Yeah. And there are community forests and woodlands and community gardens and all sorts of things spring out all over the place. Another example, um, I was um, well, I won't say where, but I was in the local authority. We just looking at the plans for a new old oh, people's home that was being built on a uh, on a piece of recycled land. <clears throat> and looking at the plans, you could see where the buildings were, you could see where the car parks were, you could see a little bit of lawn. So my question was, where's the garden? And they said it's there, it's that lawn with a couple of trees in. Can't you read them up? So, there was a garden. So, where are the old people going to come out, get their hands dirty, and you know, have you got some raised flower beds? Are they going to be able to actually do some gardening? And even thought about it. Um, so, long story short, that they, they did um, take out some of the car parking space and allocate um, a, a, a raised um, vegetable and flower garden. Um, and so, it's just little things like that if we just rethink how we do it. So, um, our role, sorry, going back to everyone who's a public health practitioner, is to try and be a catalyst. For change, we don't necessarily have to do it ourselves. But maybe um, drop in the question that no one else has thought to ask. Uh, We don't have to come up with all the answers. There are other people who can come up with the answers. But our job is to come up with the relevant questions because if we're not asking the right questions, we're not going to get the right answers. The classic example of that, which has now become a bit of a cliche, but it's quite widely practiced in medicine now, instead of asking, What's the matter with you And looking for a deficit that you can correct through your expertise? So what matters to you, Mm. because you're the expert, and how can we help you with whatever your journey is? It does take you to a different place sometimes and different interventions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I I think that's a really powerful Mm -hmm. point. And um, I'm just gonna pick on your example of the raised bed there. So it costs a couple Mm -hmm. hundred pounds to to build a raised bed thinking about what matters to you, um, Angle as well, particularly given your background, Peter, how do you measure the value because so much in the NHS is about return on investment or, you know, how do we spend this pound versus that pound? Mm -hmm. How, how within public health or how, how even at system level, so let's shift the conversation slightly. How can you say it's worth putting that raised bed in? Is there a way that you're quantifying that or measuring that?
0: Yeah, yeah, fair point. Um, I think we're all moving away from simple um looking at life expectancy and the length of survival as being a sufficient measure in its in itself. I think everyone's looking at um healthy life expectancy or quality adjusted survival. Um and that's um uh, very welcome, overdue. No, we're getting better. Even ONS itself is collecting data on uh, well being. Um, things like um, how connected people are and <clears throat> maintain the difference between isolation and loneliness, okay? <clears throat> um, we've been measuring social isolation for, for some time. How many people are living in a house on their own? And um, versus you know, measures of, of, of that sort, broken down by age and gender. But now we're getting better at through survey work of looking at the quality of that. Because some people can live in a in a very busy household and be utterly lonely, or <coughs> well, similarly someone could be living on their own but have a very you know uh, rich um social life so I think getting down to um some of the qualitative measures of outcome to answer your question um we're getting better at <coughs> and when I was a medical student, we used to dismiss out of hand without even thinking anecdotal evidence. Mm. I think more and more now people are saying. Um, We've seen the numbers, but we need the narrative. We can't make sense of the numbers without some sort of um, explanation. And so we need both. (laughs) So we need some um, measurable markers of success. of Are we collectively, through our integrated partnership, giving people longer, more meaningful, more fulfilled lives? Uh, But we also need the narrative. We're going to have that qualitative element to it.
1: Does that become too? a good
0: expression of that? I'm sorry, Tom, the sound cut out. just so they I was them.
1: just asking, does that become too individualised? Because Mr. Jones, Mrs. Smith, every, yeah. every member of your population has a different what matters. Can That's you good. measure them all in a, in a uniform way?
0: <clears throat> um, y- yes, and no. I think we do need a little bit of both. Um, I, I, was, I was about to say that um, most um, CCG clinical governing bodies will have a patient story an illustrative story around which you can build a wider picture uh, and amplify the, um, the ramifications. Um, but there are ways of collecting subjective experience and then putting some sort of um, summary statistic around them. I mean, a classic is the linear analogue scale, where you ask on, you know, from 0 to 10 on a sliding scale in a, and how do you see your um, uh, you know, quality of your relationships with other people, and various other things like that. Um, and then you can add up people's individual scores and see how they change over time, or collective scores and see if a programme is shifting collective numbers. Um, that's one illustration of the kinds of techniques which are there. I think the other technique is um, qualitative analysis, where you go in and just talk to lots and lots and lots of people, and over time, similar things emerge. I had an experience of this when I was a director of public health and I was collecting patient stories and I was collecting them for different disease areas, mental health and cancer and heart disease and dental health and um, learning difficulty and so forth. We put these patient stories up and it's only once we've got them all up that we saw there's actually a a common theme running through all of them, which was, and it caught us by surprise, they're all saying what we really want is rapid access to um, a diagnosis. We want to give a name to whatever it is that we've got. And we also want not just a diagnosis, but an assessment of what needs to be done. Because once we know what it is and what needs to be done, then a huge amount of reassurance falls into place. Okay, now we know where we're going. We can face what it is we're up against and we can play our part. And that hadn't dawned on us until we started just going, you know, just talking to people. So that's. Um, an example through um, uh, survey techniques where you can begin to to come up with answers.
1: Mm. And and, and is that even through
0: narrative approach?
1: Yeah, okay. So is that sort of narrative approach increasingly well received by the NHS.
0: Um, I don't think I'm really qualified to answer that because I don't work in the NHS anymore directly. Um, yes, I'm, I'm sure it is, and um, I, I've learned a lot of what I've learned through, um, you know, through through my interactions with um, you know various people in clinical situations. I've learned a lot through health visitors. Um, as director of public health, I asked, uh, we used to run the health visiting service in that particular part. I asked my um, head of health visiting, could you, could I have your business plan for next year? And she said, No. She said, I'm not a business. I'll give you my service plan, because we provide a service. Little insights like that. Mm. I asked um, uh, another health visitor to do a needs assessment of our Bengali female community, who's in the city of Norwich. And Melissa, she didn't do a needs assessment. She did an ability assessment. She came back and said, um, yes, of course, these women don't speak English and they stay at home a lot and they don't get out much and they have the best needs. But actually, what I've learned is they're all very good at um, cooking and keeping house. And these are skills that are really needed on the estates where they live. So let's get people um, you know, cooking together. So she set up cooking clubs. And that's such a, a wonderful way of integrating these people into the, the local community, making them feel wanted. And then in that way, they gradually pick up the language and pick up our ways um, (coughs) find out how you get to the post office, how you get to the GP, and various other things which make them more integrated.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: So it's that kind of thing. Um, One other quick example, uh, Sam Everington, now Sam Everington, the GP in London, very inspirational, uh, natural thinker, public health-minded GP. Um, They're having a problem with poor attendance at adult clinics. So he set up a flower arranging session. Women I would come for flower arranging, brackets, get their leg ulcers treated. So suddenly attendance shot up and became a jolly social event and life enhancing rather than a an horrible chore. So I think if we do a little bit more of that sort of creative lateral thinking, because medicine is supposed to be an art as well as a science and yeah. um, we need both, don't we? <clears throat>
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. and. and I was going to ask you a question anyway, that's a really nice, nice segue to it It was around health inequalities. And, and that's a big concern, I know, for a lot of our audience is how, how to support and address those. There's been a lot of concern that those gaps are widening or have widened over the last few months. Um, just picking up on your your comment there about health uh, healthcare being an art or care being an art. Um, artists are obviously very individualised, do things in their own way. Is that not? A, it, I, I suppose it's a two part question. It is Do you perceive a widening of health inequalities and how can kind of individualised approaches um,
0: support that or support yeah. closing? Well, <clears throat> at the end of the day, um, all our patients um, ill or well are individuals, so the um, diagnostic and the response has to be individualised at the end of the day anyway. So let's not get too collected um, in our thinking. Um, the artist Georges Braque famously said that the role of art is to disturb, the role of science is to reassure, <clears throat> and so we need a bit of both. So we need the individuals and the iconoclasts and so forth, who so are shaking it all up and say, "Why don't we do it this way?" Coming up with creative new ideas and natural thinking. Meanwhile, the scientists should be explaining and evaluating and putting it all back into um, <clears throat> some sort of rational box. So, we're, and, we're, and we need both. And I know good clinicians, doctors, nurses and the rest um, um, bring their personality to work, don't they? And and the interpersonal relationships is massive, absolutely massive in the therapeutic outcome at an individual level. And you can collectivise that up to to a bigger level. I think um, when it comes to tackling health inequalities, um, the, the three big areas to look at are the inequalities and the determinants of ill health. So until we tackle some of the variation in opportunity jobs, housing um, access to open spaces, and so forth, um, it, we'll, we'll be struggling. So let, let's start start there and, and look at those. And if we did nothing else, that would have gone a wrong way. Then we can look at the um, inequalities in access or uptake of what is available to people, because it's not uniformly uptaken. And it's classic that those who need screening or immunisation the most are the ones who is likely to come. Sorry, sweeping generalisation, but you get my drift. Yeah, yeah. And then finally, we we, we we can measure some of the inequalities in uh, the inequality in outcome at the end of the day. Um, <clears throat> but inequalities will be with us. Um, I think what we're talking about uh, avoidable inequalities. Yeah. Involuntary inequalities. I did take issue with the authors of the, do you remember World Class Commissioning? There may be some people who are listening to this who may remember that. Is Mark Brittenall and um, Well, w- one of the authors of that wrote in an objective for world class commissioning was that we were going to eliminate health inequalities. To which I wrote back and said, well, good luck with that, because that would mean every baby would have to be born at the same birth weight, at the same gestational age, with the same genetic predispositions. <clears throat> who have the same life experience in terms of accidents and (laughs) infections um, and the same number of illnesses or non illnesses and they die at exactly the same age. Um, We will not eliminate those, Um, nor will we eliminate the genetic variation between individuals who, some are just predetermined to die within a week because they have some lethal congenital. Some have good healthy genes and will last a long time. I think what we're trying to do is give everyone an equal opportunity to be all they can be. Okay. So whether your genetic programme is long or, long or short, try and avoid those things which will adversely impact on your life expectancy. So we all want all have a long healthy life and a short painless death. Nice yeah. square curve if you plot it against length of life <laughs> against quality of life. Yeah, but here's okay. the thing. Um, the NHS um, spends half its money on you after you're 65. This is on average. And nearly half of the remainder in your last year of your life The NHS is very good at helping people who are already at an advanced stage of illness live a little bit longer. And I think there is an argument for the NHS spending a little bit more of its time, though this is actually more the job of the local authorities actually, um, to help people live better. Um, But if a teenage girl isn't drinking enough milk and getting enough exercise, she will have thinner bones. And, you know, Mm. 40 years down the line, she will have fragility fractures. We've got to get in now to protect her bone health so that that doesn't happen. We need to intervene to help people exercise more and and keep away from smoking and drinking to excess to to protect that, um, squared off, you know, um, quality of life versus length of life curve so that we do have a long, healthy life and a short bone's death. Yeah. i can put in one plug for prevention since i'm on a sort of a band roll <laughs> very quickly is this there is a myth that if we invest in prevention it takes ages to get a re- return on that um when the reality is this um take smoking for example if you quit smoking within a day you can measure uh, a reduction in the exhaled carbon monoxide and already you're helping the unborn baby already takes the pressure off the heart in a day in a week the the, the pulse Will fall, measurably, within a month, your blood pressure will be measurably lower, and within a year, at population level, there'll be fewer heart attacks presenting at hospital. The Scottish experience when they went no smoking, so prevention can help you in real time and help people in real time. And then you get the added bonus, you know, five, 10, 15 years down the line, when there's fewer hospital admissions from smoking related diseases. Um,
1: it, is, is that it, it, Are there some myths? that exists then sort of, uh, you know, folklore that that prevention takes a long time, which are actually, yeah. you know, not necessarily evidence based claims.
0: Well, I think that's one of the myths that you come across. It it, it takes some time. So yeah, it'd be great to do. But quite honestly, you know, we've got sick people in our face, you know, we, we, we'll, this is sort of council of despair, it seems to me and, um, but nonetheless, it's very prevalent. And that's what we do. Um, uh, I harp back to my earlier example of, you know, where would you take the money from if you were going to put it into prevention? Um, that's not, I think the, the other myth is that if we um, prevent people from dying prematurely of a respiratory disease or a heart event, they'll die um, a lingering deaths of dementia in an old people's home. And you know, overall, the economics don't pay. How much better people would die um, on or about their retirement age and then, you know, we'll all save a lot of money. You know, you, you hear that um, is very uh, prevalent the truth of the matter is if we do take preventative measures on things like smoking sensible drinking and exercise um early enough then people will survive into a healthier old age mm. um it's it's not the other way around that we're um, and 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 quite honestly i think find it a, a, slightly repugnant to think well let, let's encourage unhealthy behavior so people will kill themselves early i mean you know what a waste <laughs> waste of um, life and and you know human opportunity
1: yeah yeah, yeah we, we won't put a, uh, put a recommendation on that <laughs> um if we can i j- just like to deviate slightly I, I think that's been a really really good navigation of, of the landscape so far um our audience are not not from the healthcare industry broadly. Don't always have a huge amount of experience working with local authorities, public health bodies, mm, or mm, more mm-hmm. with the NHS. Can you just describe what perception, if any, there is of of pharmaceutical and medical device and, and technology industries within mm. public health circles?
0: Mm. Um. I think if it's a local authority which happens to have a large um, pharma industry within its boundaries it will look very favorably on that as a major employer and employment brings benefits it brings council um, taxes in it um, and generally you know to have people in employment improves the health of the population um, so as employers um, <coughs> they can be viewed favorably um, and i think it's more in the nhs that there have been um, you know, difficult experiences with some of the pharma, pharmaceutical companies, interactions. It seem, I think there are controls in place now to stop the more overt um, promotional or, they uh, say, giving clinicians inducements, inappropriate inducements to, to use a particular product and that sort of thing, or overuse a particular medic medication. Um, so I think it's it, it was more on the NHS side, in my my personal experience, that there was um, a perception of pharma evil. You know. Public um, good. I think um, most people have have um, got a more balanced um, view now, and I, I can absolutely, certainly say from my own experience that some of the most unethical people I've met have actually been working in the public sector. Not in the sector. We, we won't ask for names. Um, but, but, but but people are people um, all over the world, you know, and um, <clears> there's <throat> good and bad in in either. And I think generally, generally on both the public and the private sector, people are genuinely trying to. Um, do the best, and, and 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 their motivation is is trying to bring um, services or products to to, uh, to the public yeah. to, in in improve graph.
1: Yeah. Okay. No, that's that's really good to hear. Um, and a lot of our our audience again are sort of actively looking to work collaboratively, kind of in keeping with with the way the mm. health systems are and, and becoming part of those collaborations. Mm. Really, are there any particular areas that you see pharmaceutical companies, medical technology Mm. companies, adding value to public health drives, public health initiatives, the overall agenda? Mm,
0: mm, mm. I think it works best if it goes in both directions. I think each has something to learn from the other. And there's nothing wrong with greater familiarity with each other's roles, uh, ways of working, um, uh, drivers and so forth. Uh, One way perhaps to do that is through skill swaps or job swaps. And to spend time working in each other's um, areas. Um, Obviously, that needs to be done with with forethought and and within the regulations. But um, data analysis, economic appraisals, um, that kind of thing, would seem to me a fairly obvious um, area to work on. Um, Evaluations, um, (coughs) and then maybe some of the back office functions um, IT support and systems and capabilities, HR um, procedures and practices. It ought to be that the NHS should be the exemplar when it comes to HR practice. Um, since their business is healthcare and looking after people. Sadly, I don't think that's actually the case um, universally. So that's another example. Um, so I'm just throwing out a few random ideas. That's what springs to mind. This familiarity, and it must be in both ways. Um, we need to be, avoid being... Um, and you're patronising in either direction.
1: Yeah, absolutely. In in terms of, I suppose the the broad skill set within public health bodies, you've called out a few things there. Are there particular things that you think could be done better within public health bodies generally? And again, we're we're bringing out the broadest brush we can here. But um,
0: sorry, um, things that could be done better within
1: w- within public, within public health. Public bodies. Sector. Yeah, public sector outside of the NHS, so local authorities.
0: Oh, oh, I see public body outside of the NHS. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. So the, the economist in me um, feels that um, those of us who are stewards of public money. Should look very carefully at allocative efficiency. Are we allocating our resources efficiently? Which um, could be summarized thus that there should be no one outside the offer of a, whatever the public service is offering who has a greater need, a greater ability to benefit than someone who's actually inside. So we should always be looking at those margins. Have we got it right? Are we providing services to people who, who just don't need it as much as someone who's, who's going without? Are we just responding to the articulate? Um, you know, middle classes or uh, are we going to find others? So I think that that's one. <clears throat> and um, the elimination of waste and inefficiency. I think that more and more we're coming down to that, you know, to save our planet, let alone save our public services. Um, <clears throat> and it was, I can't remember his name, I'm afraid, but it was an economist in New York who said that um, the pursuit of efficiency is in. ethical imperative for those in the public sector because the people who pay for our inefficiency are actually the public and the currency in which they pay for inefficiency isn't just their taxes it's missed life chances it's avoidable morbidity is actually dying before their time so that's a very high price to pay for inefficiency so the pursuit of efficiency is actually an ethical imperative it's it's literally deadly serious and i think um, i wish there'd be a little bit more attention to that and the way to do that i think is to change the language so we stop stop talking about um council spending or indeed nhs spending and just use the word council investment nhs investment is a minute you call it investment i know it's a synonym when you have got investment, you think, oh, I wonder what the return on the investment was. We always think about the return on the investment. And we should always think about the opportunity cost. Could that money have been better spent on some other endeavour? And we all need to learn, all of us, including public health, um, not to be too siloed or precious about our budget and what we're getting in. You know, a strong manager is someone who gets their budget bigger. A strong manager is someone who can demonstrate that <clears throat> the money couldn't have been spent on any better way than yeah. the way that they're spending it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I I, I really like that. I, I, I think as an ending yeah. point, we've we've hit our time, unfortunately. But that that nuance in the language between spending and investment, I think, summarises so much of what we hear that people can essentially be trying to say the same thing, but actually yeah. the, the interpretation of it can, can vary hugely. So, yeah. thank you very much, Peter, for for joining me today. Thank you, everyone at home, for tuning in. Um, yeah, it, it's been a hugely enjoyable. Uh, discussion that we've had today. And we'll be back in December. We are finalising the guests as we speak. um, And we hope to catch you then. Thanks very much. Bye bye.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please do subscribe for future episodes. If you'd like to find out more about our work with the NHS or how we can support your market access strategy, please email info at mtechaccess.co.uk.